Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning. I'm Carlin Bowman, and I want to thank you all for coming out on this very rainy morning to inaugurate the 20th season of AEI's Election Watch program. This is the longest-running election analysis program in Washington, having begun in 1982. We have a lot of ground to cover, so we want to get started. I think you know our panelists, my colleagues Norm Mornstein and Michael Barone from AEI, our former colleagues John Fortier, now at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and Henry Olson from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Each of my colleagues will make introductory remarks of about seven minutes. I know all of them have strong opinions about the Democratic nomination contest, but I've asked them to begin <laughs> their remarks by discussing some things that aren't getting as much attention right now. The Senate contests, the governor's races, the state of the two parties, and the House contest. Before beginning, let me say a word, as I usually do in these sessions, about the national mood. <clears throat> Donald Trump's approval rating in recent polls has been inching up. He's now hit 49% in the two most recent Gallup polls of adults. There are several possible explanations. First, we've had four polls in the last month that show confidence in the U.S. economy at the highest point in 20 years. In several polls, people are saying that their personal prospects are at an all-time high. Majorities approve of the job that Trump is doing handling the economy and separately jobs. Of course, all bets are off if we have another day or two like yesterday when the Dow Jones plunged, gold prices rose, and oil prices plummeted. When people are confident about their personal situations, perhaps paradoxically, they're often more generous about what they want governments to do. This may explain support for some of the Democrats' more expansive social programs. Another possible explanation for Trump's slight rise takes us back to something we saw after the Clinton impeachment. People wanted it to be over. Impeachment changed very little, if anything, in the contours of public opinion, but the already high support for President Clinton inched up in a number of polls. In both cases, the good news for the President's party may have caused more of the President's party's supporters to take surveys. Finally, the arguments among Democratic contenders don't help the Democrats. 65% of registered voters in nationwide in a new CBS News battleground poll said Trump would probably or definitely be reelected, including more than a third of Democrats. In the new Morning Consult poll yesterday, a 46% plurality gave that response. The head-to-head -head matchups in most polls show a tight race no matter who the Democratic nominee is. As CBS pointed out, voters are dug in. When asked how much their vote in November depended on the Democratic nominee in this new poll, 63% of general electors, 63% in the CBS survey said it didn't matter who the Democratic nominee was. In another question, 61% said that what Trump may do over the next year didn't matter to them. With that overview, let me turn to our panelists. We will start with Michael Barone, the author of the new book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Michael, how does the Senate landscape look at this point? And give us some historical context. Can the GOP hold the Senate? 
how much does the person at the top of the ticket matter, or are these races usually about the individual candidates? Michael. Well, if we were talking back in 1982, we would probably say that this, the, the Senate races were mostly about the individual candidates. Increasingly, Americans have been voting straight party tickets uh, in this century and really starting in the 1990s. Uh, and so I think uh, the basic overall trends are there. Uh, are in line with national partisan trends. And the vote in the Trump-Clinton race in 2016 can be used as a kind of index of where people are with an eye out for also the Democrats' uh, rallying and success in the uh, 2018 races for House of Representatives. Um, It's uh, the Senate. The Senate, small number of Senate seats, often decided by very small numbers, uh, can make a big difference in governance. Uh, a Senate with, the, uh, if we have a Senate with 50 Republicans cooperating with a re-elected President Donald Trump, uh, you're going to see a continued number of federal judges and perhaps Supreme Court justices um, replaced and confirmed. Um, if you have a Senate with 50 Democrats and a newly elected Democratic president, um, we're also going to see a lot of judicial appointees, I think, but the, uh, uh, the numbers are going to be very different. Uh, given the change in rules put through initially by uh, the political philosopher <coughs> Harry Reid and continued by and widened by the political philosopher Mitch McConnell, uh, 50 votes confirms judges. Uh, these days. Um, And a very small number of popular votes uh, can make a difference. Um, It's not because uh, Republicans have an advantage from their domination of small states. The 10 largest states have 10 Democratic and 10 Republican senators. The 10 smallest states in population have 10 Republican and 10 Democratic senators, including Bernie Sanders. Um, It's the states in the middle uh, that make the difference. Um, Republicans are on the defensive in Senate races. They're defending 23 seats, uh, the Democrats only 12. Uh, And uh, most of those seats are counted as safe for the current parties. Um, But with straight ticket uh, voting, um, there are probably going to be some changes. Um, The seat in greatest jeopardy of changing hands is probably the Alabama special, uh, the Alabama seat won in a special election by Democrat Doug Jones. Uh, by a 50 to 48 margin over uh, the Republican, the, may I say, eccentric Republican, Roy Moore. Um, the uh, Senator Jones uh, can claim to have a competent, re- to be a competent person who has served honorably. Uh, he's also had a strong liberal voting record in the state that went for Trump over Clinton by 28 points. Um, current polling shows him doing better than the average Democrat, but not well enough to win. Uh, well, Roy Moore is running again, but the last poll I saw showed him getting 5% in the Republican primary. So uh, unless there's a huge uh, number of votes somehow nominating Roy Moore, I think that uh, Jeff Sessions or the Republican nominee, he's got competition, um, are the favorites to win these seats. Uh, hard to see where Republicans make further gains. I think the large, likeliest possibility is in Michigan. Um, my home state, narrowly carried by Donald Trump to the surprise of almost everybody. Uh, one-term Democratic incumbent Gary Peters seems to have the lowest name identification of any incumbent senator. And the Republican challenger John James held, 
who held three-term Democrat Debbie Stabenow to a six-point win two years ago, is running a vigorous campaign. So that's a possible turnover. Um, and, you know, the, uh, uh, if you look at the Cook political report, um, that they race, rate that as lean Democratic. They've got a couple more races in Minnesota, and New Mexico is likely uh, Democratic. Um, which is more likely than lean. Um, Minnesota was a one-and-a-half-point Clinton state, uh, less than expected. If you look at New Mexico, the combined vote for Trump and the libertarian Gary Johnson, um, who's former governor there, was one point ahead of Clinton. Um, you may have a race in New Hampshire, which was a one-point um, Trump loss in 2016, um, but uh, and has always been closely divided in the Senate races, but um, those look like long shots. Um, the question then is, if assuming Alabama puts the Republicans up 54-46, can the Democrats win enough seats to get 50 uh, or 51 seats, which they would need, depending on who wins the presidential election, uh, for a majority? Um, one place they're looking for that is in Maine, where Susan Collins' votes for Justice Brett Kavanaugh and against removing Trump have given her spirited opposition, and she's not likely to duplicate her previous lopsided margins. But that was just a three-point Clinton state in 2016. Maine uh, split from Massachusetts in 1820, and it's not a part of Massachusetts anymore. Um, two western and two southern states carried easily by George W. Bush back in 2004, which doesn't seem so long ago to me, but perhaps it does for many in the audience, um, are now marginal in presidential races, and Republican senators are there are threatened. Uh, Cory Gardner was a two-point winner in 2014 in Colorado. Uh, that was a five-point Clinton state. He's obviously at risk uh, to go former Governor John Hickenlooper or others. Um, Martha McSally lost by two points in Arizona to 2018. She was then appointed to fill the late John McCain's seat. Uh, she's been narrowly trailing Democrat Mark Kelly. Um, Georgia's fast-growing black population has made that state more marginal. It was a five-point Trump state uh, appointee, Republican appointee Kelly Leffler, uh, to Johnny Isaacson's seat may be pressed to hold on to that seat. Um, North Carolina, with pretty similar demographics, was a four-point Trump state. Uh, Republican Tom Tillis, with low substantive identification, has serious opposition. Uh, I would add a note of caution for Democrats, however, um, because in all four states, uh, Democrats have benefited, have become more competitive in presidential races than they were, say, in 2004. Um, from increasing support from affluent uh, white college grads. Uh, this is a group that Donald Trump has done poorly with, uh, much more so than with other voters. This is a group from which Democrats uh, won, you know, the House seat in Georgia 6, for example, the North Atlanta suburbs, uh, which is the sixth most uh, uh, high education district in the country. Um, had been heavily Republican, elected a Democrat. Uh, so Democrats depend on those white college grads in this kind of environment um, to uh, carry those states or to come uh, win elections in those states. 
Thanks, Michael. We're now going to turn to John, John Fortier. AI is soon going to publish the fourth edition of an invaluable primer, After the People Vote, edited by John. It explains how the Electoral College works, and it offers arguments both for and against it. It includes a chapter written by Norm on contested elections. John is also one of the country's leading experts on early and absentee voting, having authored uh, an AI book on the subject in 2006. Ten of the Super Tuesday states, including delegate-rich California and Texas, have already started voting. In Nevada, it looks like about 70% of caucus voters voted early. I've asked John to talk about the governor's contest and also to provide some in insights on electoral processes these years, this year. John. Thank you, Carlin. Uh, and Carlin was too modest to mention that Carlin actually has a new chapter in this uh, After the People Vote on public opinion on the Electoral College. And if you know Carlin's work, of course, there's no one better to have really surveyed the last 50 years or so of what people think about the Electoral College. So coming soon. So I'm going to talk about the governors and a little bit about rules and especially election administration early voting rules. First, the governors, the landscape is it's a little more closely divided between Republicans and Democrats than it was. Uh, in the Obama uh, administration, Republicans had reached a high watermark of in the mid to high 30s of holding governorships. It's divided 27 Republicans to 23 Democrats today. Um, and of those states, Democrats hold eight uh, that are in Trump won states, uh, four of them big Trump win states, Montana, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Kansas, and four closer states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. Uh, and Republicans hold four uh, states in, in that Hillary Clinton won, and again, three of those are, are big Democratic states, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maryland, uh, and then New Hampshire, a, a swing state. Um, so this is the small class of governors. In a way, it's um, the less exciting class than the midterms. There are only uh, 11 governorships up, uh, seven of them held by Republicans, four by Democrats. Uh, and there are also you know, smaller states, many of them, not, not all, but smaller states, uh, at least the more competitive ones, uh, which I'll quickly mention the impact on redistricting, which is probably not so much from the governor's races, perhaps from some state legislative races one last uh, cycle before we hit redistricting. Um, of the competitive races, I think really it, we want to look at Montana as the, as the top of the list. Montana, a state that voted 20 points for, for Donald Trump, uh, but has been held, the governorship has been held by Democrats for, for quite some time. Steve Bullock, a uh, short-time presidential candidate, uh, term limited out of, of his seat. Uh, so it's an open seat, but it's, it's an interesting competitive seat with uh, actually an interesting primary on the Republican side. Um, North Carolina, a state which Democrats hold, Roy Cooper, um, I think a state that probably still leans to Roy Cooper retaining that seat, but nonetheless a very competitive state, uh, and one that, uh, interestingly, I think people are really going to be looking at in the redistricting contest, but one interesting fact is that the North Carolina governor has no role in redistricting, so it is purely a state legislative matter as we get to that. Uh, I mentioned three others, which are uh, a little more, uh, well, they're, they're somewhat safe on the Republican side, but they're, they're, but they're lean Republicans. Uh, those would be West Virginia, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Uh, again, Vermont being a very Democratic state, uh, with Phil Scott uh, running on a two-year term. One interesting note is that if Scott does not get a pure majority, just gets a, gets a plurality, that governorship race, that gubernatorial race, goes to the state legislature. Uh, that's happened many times in Vermont. Very rarely has the, has the 
plurality winner been denied the possibility? But I guess in today's climate, I, that, that is a possibility, although I think he is still favored. Um, New Hampshire with Chris Sununu and West Virginia with Jim Justice potentially have races, but I think they're, they're probably leaning in the Republican direction. Uh, on to early voting uh, or early voting and election administration. Carlin is right. The trend uh, generally since the, I wrote this book in, in 2006 has been more and more and more early voting. And by that, we could mean early voting in person or early voting by mail. Uh, both are, are up significantly over 40% of the general electorate in, in, 2000, um, in 2016. Um, why does it matter? One, it, it has mattered in the caucuses. Um, the caucuses may, on the Democratic side, be not long for this world. Uh, partly there were some problems with technology. Partly uh, the parties running the, the caucuses versus election officials caused some problems. But partly we were, we were doing some complex things. We were introducing early voting and, and non-caucus-based voting into this system and trying to combine them. And I think that made it very difficult and, and caused results to be um, held back for a while. So I would you know, watch that as a, as, a, um, as a factor. There are a large number of votes that have already been cast. Uh, we don't have the case where there are probably so many of cast for a candidate that has dropped out at the last minute here. And I guess I do want to emphasize both for the general election, but also for the uh, primary elections that we are potentially facing some, some scenarios where it is going to take a long time to count the votes. Um, in, in the general election, I think people worry about uh, what if there's a very close race and what about the legitimacy of the race, but maybe we find that we have the, the election results delayed. Uh, but but it, it happened before in, in, in Iowa in, in, in 2016 that the delays um, step on the message that I've done very well in, in, in California. So that's uh, one of the factors of early voting. Thank you very much, John. Everybody's right on time this morning. Um, now I'm going to turn to Henry Olson. And if you don't read Henry's uh, daily Washington Post columns, you should. Henry is the author of Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism, and The Four Faces of the Republican Party. Henry is the only person on this stage who's actually run for office. I've asked Henry to speak about the state of both political parties and why it matters for November's elections. Henry. Thank you, Carlin. Thinking about the state of the parties, there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is the uh, parties as a voter uh, base. Uh, the second is the relationship between the leaders and the parties. And the third is the parties as a technical election apparatus. So I'm going to briefly touch on each. With respect to the election apparatus, uh, the Republican National Committee has always been, in recent times, significantly stronger than the Democratic National Committee. They are raising money hands over, hand over fish. The DNC is not as uh, flush with cash as the Republicans are. And the Trump campaign, because it hasn't had to face a serious internal op opponent, uh, is already itself flush with cash and is much more technically sophisticated. Of course, you know, it's not hard to be more technically sophisticated than the Trump 2016 campaign, uh, which, you know, which anyone who was close to it says was not really more of a campaign at all in a traditional sense. It was a candidate flying around holding rallies. Uh, but every indication is that the Republicans uh, have sophisticated targeting operations, sophisticated uh, databases, and uh, more than enough money to put into the field. Uh, so and on that sense, the Republicans at the national level will outpace the Democrats. Uh, at the committee level, the Senate and the House committees, the Democrats, however, are doing quite well fundraising. 
and a lot of the Democratic talent is uh, on the campaign side is linked into those committees. So we shouldn't look at the Democrats as having a technical disadvantage for the races uh, for Congress. Uh, so in that sense, the state of the parties is relatively healthy. Um, if looking at uh, the question of the voters in the party, Republican voters are relatively unified. The people who did not like the direction the Republican Party was taking are largely no longer Republicans, or if they are, they're Republicans in exile. These are uh, the college-educated, affluent people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, voted for Democrats for the House. Uh, they are, were not a huge part of the Republican coalition, which is one reason why they were easily swept aside, but they often had punched above their weight in intra-party disputes and were rather shocked to find how far out of step they were. Uh, but the Republican voter base is relatively united and any disputes that will be coming up between them are being uh, suppressed by the need to re-elect the president and more importantly for many Republicans keep the Democrats out. The Democrats on facially appear to be divided but in fact are also uh, with respect to a bipartisan election quite united. Uh, that if there's one thing that unites the Democrats, it's the need to keep the Republicans out and particularly defeat that man in the White House. But what we're seeing in the presidential race right now is uh, a lingering divide within the Democrats, and that is the question of whether or not this, uh, the stat America needs significant change or America needs um, some form of recalibration. The Democratic elite, the center-left of the party, largely believes in the latter, that they are perfectly satisfied with the way that President Obama conducted his administration and would like to see more of the same. Uh, and the people who are not uh, are the people who uh, support a man whose uh, pack was called our revolution, you know, which is not terribly subtle. And uh, the polls suggest that people are roughly divided between whether they want the party to move in a more leftward direction or if they want to continue the course. And this is um, something that the Democratic leadership has tried to uh, avoid confronting, uh, which is understandable, but avoiding confronting that in one sense has given strength to the revolutionaries, that those who want dramatic change are moving ahead because they're not going to wait. They want dramatic change. And uh, rather than mobilize uh, their voters uh, in response to that, what you've seen is a desire not to confront this. And my third question, which is the leaders versus the voters. There, we've seen large disconnects. And their disconnects are not dissimilar from the sort of disconnects that we've seen in parties throughout the world, which is that increasingly on left and right, you see people who want radical change from a status quo that had largely defined the Western world from 1988 to 2008. Uh, Right-wing uh, populism, for the phrase that's used, uh, wants action in one direction. Uh, Left-wing populism, uh, typified by Jeremy Corbyn or the party that won the latest Irish election, Sinn Féin, wants direction and change in another direction. What they're united about is that the ins, the people who have largely run the bipartisan consensus that have governed the Western world for the 20-year period leading to the great financial uh, crash, um, should be out. And uh, the leaders are, of both uh, parties in this country are largely people who don't believe there should be radical change. Uh, in the Trump administration, uh, those people have largely fallen in line with Trump, waiting for the day when they can recover. But the, uh, many in Washington on the Republican side have yet to realize 
how much their, their internal uh, desires are out of step with their voter base. And the Democrats are seeing that right now, is that the Democratic establishment here would like to see uh, a more temperate, less radical change than much of the Democratic voter base wants to see. And ultimately, that uh, means that the parties are realigning in ways that will mean uh, new leaders will come to the fore and current leaders will find themselves on the sidelines. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether and how this realignment shakes out. But looking at the rest of the world, it appears that it's, more, it's easier for the right to adjust to its changes than it is for the left. There are very few examples of a, a strong center-left leader who has managed to recapture uh, the energy of the left, whereas there are many examples of successful center-right leaders who have defused populist anger by adopting some of their policies. And there are examples of center-left leaders who have risen to power by defusing some of the populism, such as in Denmark, and bringing it to their own side. So uh, I think the Democrats have a day of reckoning in the next four years uh, that is uh, long delayed, uh, but will be nonetheless painful to experience now that it's come. Thank you very much, Henry. And last but not least, my longtime colleague, Norm Ornstein from AEI. Norm and I started this election watch program in 1982, and he's been a regular participant in every election cycle since. Um, but now Norm's going to talk about the House races and whether or not the Republicans, uh, they need a net gain of 18 seats, and how well is the GOP positioned uh, for that takeover? Thanks so much, Carlin. Today is day 1130 of the Trump presidency, or as he says, longer than any other president. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's also week 166 of Infrastructure Week. Uh, and <laughs> We're waiting eagerly for week 167. I, I want to just put one little larger framework here. We're in a time of great uncertainty. It's not just uncertainty in terms of the presidential nomination, but the larger environment we face. Um, there's the uh, impact of Brexit, which is still uncertain, of the trade wars, but now the coronavirus. And I want to, because there's always a tweet for anything, um, a very interesting tweet from Donald Trump on February 25th of 2015, and I quote, if the Dow Jones, spelled J-O-A-N-S, ever falls more than a thousand points in a single day, the sitting president should be loaded into a very big cannon and shot into the sun at <laughs> tremendous speed, no excuses, exclamation point. So the Space Force apparently will have its first mission. Uh, but all of that, uh, besides being funny, really tells us that uh, a lot of the factors here that could shape the outcome of the election from top to bottom uh, go beyond who the candidates are, uh, but to that larger environment. And uh, if we end up with very severe economic perturbations, along with a pandemic and a health crisis that could spread quickly across the globe, and no clear sense that we have the best people possible in charge uh, at the CDC or elsewhere uh, to deal with it, uh, that could have a very big impact on the elections. Now, when we look at the House, the Democrats, uh, of course, got a big victory in 2018 and recaptured their majority. And if you look at uh, the Cook Political Report and its ratings, at least at this point, 
There are 216 Democratic seats that are seen as either safe or pretty close to that. You need 218 to make a majority. The Republicans uh, have 192 in that category, and that leaves uh, 26 seats that are in the toss-up range or maybe even a little bit worse for the parties. And of course, especially because they won significantly the last time, more of those are seats held by Democrats than by Republicans. It's basically about 18 to 8. And not surprisingly, the Democratic seats that are vulnerable are ones where they took, in many cases with surprise, uh, a Republican seat. That includes one in Oklahoma, uh, Kendra Horn, which was quite uh, astonishing. Uh, it includes a Utah seat that Mia Love had held. Uh, it includes three in uh, Iowa. And also a number of seats in suburban areas uh, in uh, places like uh, suburban New York with Max Rose and Michigan with Alyssa Slotkin. And the seat in Maine, uh, Maine's second congressional district, which we will look at with enormous interest, not just because of the question of where, whether Jared Golden can win re-election, but in an election that, turned out, that could turn out to be very close for the presidency, that could make the difference between a 269-269 electoral split and a, uh, a 271 victory for uh, a president. And of course, right now, the focus should be on those suburban voters, the ones that Henry mentioned, and a lot more, those who still consider themselves Republicans, but who decided they wanted to check and balance and voted Democratic for House races in uh, places where they had voted Republican for president uh, in the uh, presidential contest. Now, when you get a wave election, usually the close contests tip overwhelmingly in one direction or another. And a wave election, which is at least possible but not likely, could put that Democratic House majority in jeopardy. At this point, you would say it's not in jeopardy, but the numbers are likely to be reduced a little bit. And what we can also say is the 2018 election dramatically changed the dynamic in the country. When you move to having one House, at least, that is a check against the president, even if it doesn't result in an enormous change in legislative outcomes, it makes a real difference, especially in this day and age, in terms of investigations, uh, oversight, uh, which is not happening in the other House uh, at all. So whether we have united government or divided government next time is going to have enormous implications for the direction of the country. And given the tribal dynamism in Washington, whether we have any capacity to deal with the uh, problems that we face uh, at home and abroad. Let me just change gears for a moment and ask whether any of you see a lasting impact of impeachment, any lasting impact of impeachment. No. 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 Not on voters' choices. Uh, no. It's just, it's, it's going to become routine in American history, perhaps. Henry? No, I mean, I just, uh, I think it hardened choices. So to that extent, it might have uh, helped Trump very slightly. Uh, but I don't uh, think it'll be uh, much talked about in the campaigns in the fall. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, we'll, we'll see the issues come up again. We'll see more congressional oversight on some of the same or, or issues around that will be pleasing to the Democratic base. Republicans won't like it. I think Henry's right that there's been a sort of slight help for, for Trump, motivated motivation of Trump voters, but uh, I think we're pretty locked in on both sides. 
Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.